Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing on our look back on the big tech stories of 2019. Now, the last episode was all about bummers. This one is only mostly about bummers. But don't blame me. I didn't make the news. Also, I should point out that, of course, I'm just giving kind of a high-level overview of stuff that happened in 2019 because to cover everything that happened in tech would be beyond even my impressive capabilities. And uh, I should also add that um, I've got some updates to stuff. What happened in the last episode? Because as it turns out, when I recorded part one and when I'm recording part two, time passed and stuff continued to develop. That's how news works, and I resent it. But one story I do need to follow up on broke between that time, and that was that uh, Dennis Muhlenberg, uh, the CEO of Boeing, resigned from Boeing as the company was dealing with the consequences of the 737 MAX fleet being grounded, among other problems at the company. Generally speaking, analysts said that his stepping down was sort of a necessary part of Boeing regaining confidence among customers and shareholders. Not that all blame should be put on the CEO's shoulders, but that this was one of those steps a company has to take in order to convince people, hey, we are really taking this seriously and we need to make some changes. Now, the next two stories that I want to talk about are related and they are both extremely dark and upsetting, but I also feel they are important to acknowledge and consider And for some of you, you might feel as though I'm going to get really preachy about this. I am not going to apologize for that in this case. Now, the first dark story is about March 15th, 2019. That was when a gunman carried out attacks on two different mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, killing 51 people and injuring another 49. Now, the reason the story gets included in tech news is that the gunman streamed the attack on the first mosque over on Facebook Live. Uh, Other people grabbed the video feed and then they began to post it elsewhere, which ensured that even as platforms were removing it, others were hosting it. The New Zealand government classified the video as objectionable, which is a legal classification in New Zealand. It meant that distributing, copying, or exhibiting the video would be against the law. But the video was already out on the internet. Now, most platforms have created digital fingerprints of the video in order to detect future uploads, thus blocking it automatically and then removing them very quickly. The gunman, identified as Britton Tarrant, had been active in far-right organizations and white supremacy groups online and off. And there's been a rise in activity in online communities of such radical groups, raising warnings of extremists using the internet to recruit others and reinforce some truly awful beliefs. And this brings me to story number two, which is that these groups have made use of some notable online communities to encourage one another and create a space for extremism. One of those online communities, and perhaps the most infamous, is 8kun, formerly known as 8chan. The history of 8chan dates back to 2013, when Frederick Brennan created it as an alternative to an earlier online message board community called 4chan. Now, Brennan felt 4chan was becoming too restrictive. 
which is a sentence that's hard to even believe if you're at all familiar with 4chan. The only rule on 8chan was that you weren't supposed to post or link to any content that would be illegal in the United States. Brennan ended his association with the site in 2018. In 2019, in the wake of shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand, also in Poway, California, and El Paso, Texas, uh, and also links back to 8chan showing how the perpetrators of those three different shootings had used 8chan to publish their own manifestos, Brennan, the founder of the site, was one of the voices calling for the site to get shut down. That actually did happen in August 2019, but the site since returned as Aikun as of November 2019. And there is a pretty complicated situation going on here. On the one hand, the founders of the internet and of the World Wide Web envisioned a platform that would support freedom of speech and the exchange of ideas. On the other hand, many people, particularly those from already vulnerable communities, are put in danger as extremism is on the rise. The safe haven for those who espouse these extremist, radical, racist, and misogynist, and violent beliefs is contributing to an increasingly toxic subculture. In addition, several tech companies have enabled this subculture. It hasn't necessarily been a conscious decision, but the principles of running a business, in which your goal is to return value to shareholders, isn't always in alignment with doing what's actually best for the general population. In fact, those two things can often come into conflict with one another. In some cases, like Aitkun, this is far more apparent. But it's also the case with stuff like more public platforms, such as Twitter and Facebook. Those companies struggle with how to deal with a particularly thorny subject to varying degrees of success, most of which satisfy very few people. I wish I had a solution to this very large problem, but I believe such a solution has to go much deeper than taking a website offline or removing an option for people to voice these hateful philosophies. That's part of it, but it doesn't address the deeper underlying problems that feed into that toxicity to begin with. So all I can really do is appeal to you guys to exercise compassion and critical thinking. Those two things are absolutely necessary in my view. All right. The darkest of the dark stuff in this episode is over, so let's move on. One thing that happened in 2019 might set us on a path for widespread use of drones to deliver packages. In the spring of 2019, the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, certified Wing, that's the drone delivery startup company that's owned by the Google parent company Alphabet, uh, they certified them to operate as an air carrier. This regulatory step allows Wing to make commercial deliveries in the United States. The company had already been conducting tests in Australia in anticipation of receiving government approval in the United States. And there are still many questions that need to be answered, and we're likely to see very limited rollout of drone delivery services in specific regions as companies and local governments kind of hash out the best way to move forward. Now, personally... I'm curious to see if drone delivery will prove to be a more efficient means of delivering packages on a large enough scale to make sense. I mean, I can see how it could be incredibly useful in scenarios where getting to a location is challenging and the need to deliver something important like medication is really urgent. 
but I'm not entirely convinced yet that it would make sense from a more general use standpoint. However, I also haven't run the figures, nor do I know how much it costs to operate delivery services as they stand right now. So it's entirely possible that this is a viable alternative to more traditional delivery services. I just don't know enough to comment on it firmly. But it's hard for me to believe that on the face of it that it would be more cost-effective and efficient, uh, unless you just had truly enormous fleets, in which case then you have the technological and administrative difficulties that come with managing that large of a fleet. So I just don't know. Sticking with government approval, because there were a lot of stories that fall into that category this year, the Federal Communications Commission in the United States, or the FCC, approved the merger of telecommunications companies T-Mobile and Sprint. Now, according to analysts, the chief purpose of this merger is to enhance T-Mobile's 5G technology rollout to give it a stronger position in the United States as, a, as you know, 5G networks are starting to come online. Just a few years ago, according to reports from a consulting firm called McKinsey, T-Mobile was eyeing a merger with Sprint, but for a different reason. It was in an effort to become more competitive against AT&T and Verizon, which are the other two major cellular phone carriers in the United States. While the FCC has given its approval, that's just one regulatory hurdle that telecommunications companies have to overcome before they can merge. Regulatory agencies at both the state and federal levels are still considering this plan, and they may place restrictions or limitations on any merger, or they might deny it outright. T-Mobile has reportedly been renegotiating the deal in the meantime, and the old reports from 2015, the ones that stated T-Mobile was first looking at Sprint for a possible merger, said that T-Mobile also entertained the notion of allowing Comcast, the mega cable corporation, to acquire T-Mobile. There may well be some serious offers for acquisitions like that in the near future, of either T-Mobile or Sprint or a merged version of the two from such a cable company, whether it's Comcast or a different one. Speaking of corporate maneuvers, one drama that finally finished playing out in 2019, really kind of fizzled out and sputtered a bit, was the tale of Amazon's HQ2 in New York City. So let's backtrack a bit. The company initially announced it was looking into expanding its corporate headquarters, which are based out of Seattle, Washington, into a different city in 2018. They famously held a request for proposals in 2018, asking for cities that were eager to host this new headquarters to present their, their proposals, their deals. That in turn prompted a series of stories about incredibly generous tax breaks and other incentives, as well as some fairly absurd publicity stunts. That stretched throughout most of 2018 until in November of that year, Amazon announced it had settled on two locations that would share the duty of being HQ2. One is in Arlington, Virginia, and the other was in New York City, New York. Now, there was some pretty hefty criticism early on from various sources that alleged Amazon had chosen these two locations from the beginning, that it had these in mind when they even asked for the proposals in the first place. One of the pieces of supposed evidence that they used to support this claim is that uh, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos apparently had homes near those two proposed locations. 
and that the whole selection process was therefore nothing more than an effort to create a competitive environment so that both New York and Arlington would continuously improve their deals so Amazon would get the sweetest tax break. But that presumably the plan all along was to move into those two locations. Whether that's true or not, we get to 2019. And early in 2019, New York City residents voiced some rather critical opinions about their new proposed neighbor. Journalists reported that the proposed HQ2 site in New York City would take up land that had previously been intended for the use of 6,000 homes, including a significant number of low-income homes. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a U.S. representative from New York, voiced concern that the incentives offered to Amazon would hurt the city both in the near and the long term, that it would undermine efforts to fund government improvements to critical infrastructure in the city because of these enormous tax breaks. You know, if Amazon's not paying taxes, that revenue is not coming from them. The financial burden falls on everyone else in New York. And frequently that means that programs have to get reduced or cut so that you can, you know, make your money stretch out further. In February 2019, Amazon announced it was canceling its plan to build out its location in New York City. Amazon does lease out some office space, a a significant amount of office space in New York, but it no longer plans to have a second corporate headquarters there. And since we're talking about Amazon, let's move on to one of the properties that Amazon owns, and that would be The Ring company. That's the company that produces surveillance cameras and and surveillance doorbells, you know, doorbells that have the cameras and communication systems. Well, in 2019, there were a few stories of hackers who had gained access to users' ring equipment, whether it was the surveillance cameras or the ring doorbells. Some hackers did this in an effort to expose vulnerabilities. So they were doing it to say, hey, we need to fix this because it's a problem. But others did it specifically to harass or exploit people. And those stories were alarming and continue to be alarming. Some of them involve kids, and it's incredibly disturbing. And they've led to at least one class action lawsuit against Amazon. The allegation is that Ring isn't doing enough to ensure customers' privacy and security are maintained, which is particularly a problem for a company that markets equipment that's meant to enhance security, not exploit vulnerabilities. Now, I haven't seen all the details about how the Ring systems were actually hacked. There are different ways to gain access to connected systems on a network. Sometimes you can find a vulnerability in an endpoint, such as an actual device connected to the network. So in those cases, you would say, all right, the hacker managed to hack into the network via this ring uh, device. That very well may be the case. Maybe they were able to brute force a password through that and they got access that way. But other times hackers might find a way to compromise the network itself. And then they can access the various components connected to that network as if they were in fact the legitimate administrator of the network. In the case of ring, it sounds to me as though they found it through password vulnerabilities. The lawsuit states that Ring should have required users to create more robust passwords and to require two-factor authentication to prevent abuse. And just in case you're not familiar with the concept, two-factor authentication is a subset of what is called multi-factor authentication, which just means that you're using two or more factors, which really just means two to three factors to authenticate your identity. And those factors are categories of stuff. 
right? Those categories are what you know. This would be something like a password or a PIN. So that would be something that you have knowledge of and you provide when you are accessing a system. Uh, the second factor is what you have, like what you physically have on you. That could be a mobile device. So it could be that you provide your password or PIN and then it sends a code to your mobile device, which you also have to enter. Or you might have a token that you have to use in some way to access the system. And then the third factor is what you are. And this would refer to things like biometric data. Maybe it's a retinal scan or a fingerprint scan or a voice scan. Multi-factor authentication requires you present at least two of those three factors, possibly one of all three. It all depends on the implementation. So you might enter a password, then you receive your code, you enter the code, and then you get access. But that proves you both know the password and you also have possession of an authorized mobile device, which limits the possibility that an unauthorized person is going to gain access to that system. Now, this touches on an issue that I think is really important and is growing more important as the Internet of Things gets bigger. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. In network security, there are many potential weak links. You could have a badly designed piece of hardware or software that has vulnerabilities in it, and that offers an inroad for an intrusion into a network. You can also have users who practice really poor security habits, like they choose common passwords, like a common dictionary word as a password. That's a terrible, terrible habit. No one should do it. Or they're using the same password for multiple services. Also a terrible idea. But this raises a question. Who should be accountable for data security? After all, users should be employing strong, unique passwords as a matter of habit. And if you heard about someone's house being robbed because they forgot to lock the door, I don't think your first instinct would be to sue the lock company for letting it happen. I think end users are at least partly accountable for good data security. However, that being said, I also think that companies have a responsibility. They need to create rules that require strong passwords and multi-factor authentication by default. They need to essentially force users to be more careful. They enable users to practice good security. And by enable users, I really mean limit the options that users have that, that result in poor security. I think it's the user's responsibility to be more secure and the company's responsibility to enable it. But that's just me. Now, when we come back, we'll look at some more stories from 2019. Here's a story that started making the news just before 2019 wrapped up. I mean, I learned about it shortly before coming into the studio. So uh, Devin Wilson, or uh, at Atomic Thumbs on Twitter, criticized the company Sonos for what he saw as a particularly egregious example of trying to control the aftermarket on electronics. Now, Sonos is primarily known for making speaker systems particularly smart speakers. And like a lot of tech companies, it depends heavily on creating incentives for established Sonos customers to upgrade and update their equipment. You know, if everyone just went out and bought the latest Sonos speaker and they thought, oh, this works great and had no reason to upgrade, the company would have a very rough year. So they have to create incentives for people to keep buying their stuff. In that way, Sonos' strategy is really similar to that of things like smartphone handset manufacturers. 
It's the Apple iPhone model, in other words. Each subsequent generation of devices incorporates features that older devices cannot support. Whether that lack of support comes from technical limitations of the hardware or managerial decisions is a moot point, I suppose. I mean, it could come down to executives say, just don't let this run on older stuff. Not that the older stuff is inherently incapable of running it. Doesn't matter, the end result is the same. Sonos has a trade-up program that gives existing Sonos users a 30% credit toward a new Sonos device if those users activate what is called recycle mode on their older Sonos device. Now, recycle mode starts a countdown clock. It's a 21-day countdown. And at the end of that, Sonos puts the device on a blacklist so that it is bricked, meaning you can't use it at all. It will not work. It is ineffective. And it also means that you can't give it away or sell it, or at least you can't do so ethically because you'd just be handing over what amounts to being a, a giant paperweight with a lot of circuit boards and wires in it. So really, the only options are to try and hack the speakers, which isn't really an option most people would feel comfortable trying to tackle and would probably have limited use anyway, or you could send the speaker to an e-waste recycling facility, or you just throw the darn thing away. That's not a great option. It adds e-waste. E-waste is bad stuff. And recycling, while better than throwing stuff out, isn't as environmentally friendly as reusing stuff. If you've ever heard reduce, reuse, recycle, well, it's in that order of preference. You want to reduce the amount of waste you generate. You want to reuse stuff as much as you can. The stuff you can't reuse, you recycle. The stuff you can't reuse or recycle, then you can throw away. But even that is, you know, not great. So Wilson's point was that Sonos's program actually incentivizes creating e-waste. It encourages people to brick their old device in order to get this 30% credit toward their next purchase. And it makes those old devices useless to anyone. And sure, they these people might go and recycle their old Sonos speakers, but that's not as good an option as to keep the equipment in working order so that someone else can actually make use of it rather than for it to just go to waste. Critics have said this really isn't about reducing waste. It's about Sonos limiting the viability of a secondary market because Sonos doesn't make money off of someone selling off an old pair of speakers or anything like that. The company has a financial incentive to discourage aftermarket resales and to create pathways for people to buy directly from Sonos or, or from retailers who are carrying Sonos speakers. So the criticism states that this is a devious way for Sonos to play the environmentally conscious card, you know, to make it look like they're being eco-friendly, while actually they're taking aim at a market that can undercut their own revenues, that being the resale market. You know, we've seen this with other properties as well, other types of gadgets and electronics as well as video games. This idea of getting rid of that resale market in order to create the incentive for people to go out and buy new copies as opposed to used copies or used uh, devices in this case. All right, well, how about we do some Apple news? A big piece of news regarding Apple broke in late June 2019 when Jonathan Ive, better known as Sir Johnny Ive, announced he was leaving the company. He had been with Apple for nearly three decades, working primarily in design. 
He joined the company back in 1996 when it was in a bit of a pickle. That was a year before the ousted Steve Jobs would return to the company. He was one of the influential designers who defined Apple's iPhone approach, setting the stage for the company's meteoric rise in success. He announced he would be heading up a new design company called Lovefrom and that he would still work with Apple on projects just from an independent business owner standpoint as opposed to an Apple executive. I've played an intrinsic role in designing some of Apple's defining products over the last 20 years, so it'll be interesting to see how the company moves forward. I've and Jobs together were often cited as the visionaries who kind of set Apple on its course. And people have been asking what Apple's up to ever since Jobs passed away. So with Ive's departure, I'm wondering how that's going to affect the company as well. Apple wasn't just dealing with the departure of one of its more famous employees, however. The company also had some other snags in 2019 due to product issues. At the beginning of the year, Benjamin Mayo of the Apple News and Rumors site 9to5Mac broke a big story about a vulnerability in the company's FaceTime app. So for those who aren't familiar, FaceTime is a video chat app. It's so you can make video calls on iOS devices. Uh, Though I should add that at least one Apple user had tried to warn the company more than a week before the story broke. Uh, They had found this independently. So it was a known issue, arguably not just to the Apple community, but to Apple itself before the, the story broke in 9to5Mac. Anyway, Mayo found that if you used FaceTime to make a call between any devices running iOS version 12.1 or later, and then you added your own number into the call as if you were conferencing in yourself, the person making the call, you, would be able to hear the audio from the receiver's phone before the receiver had chosen to accept the call in the first place. So all you would have to do is put in someone's number, have it start to dial a FaceTime call, conference in yourself, and you could listen in on the other phone's microphone. You could even use some options to activate the camera on the phone. Uh, And it wasn't just phones. It was also, you know, other mobile devices, but also Macs, because the Mac OS supported FaceTime as well. So if you did this, you could presumably use someone's Mac computer to spy on their home. Uh, And because... This would only work as long as the other device was ringing and FaceTime times out after a certain amount of ringing. That ringing actually lasts a lot longer on Mac OS. Uh, a call can end up going much longer uh, in, the, in the calling phase for Mac OS because the thought is not everyone is at their computer all the time, so you might be across the house when the call comes in. You might not hear it at first. So they have a longer uh, calling session that'll last until there's an automatic cutoff, which means you could presumably spy longer until someone noticed that there was a FaceTime call coming in. So this was a a huge flaw in the software. And the vulnerability uh, would be patched, but initially Apple's response was just to suspend the group FaceTime feature so that you couldn't conference anyone in at all. You could only do person-to-person calls. You couldn't do conference calls. And then in February of 2019, the company pushed out the patch that sealed up those vulnerabilities and re-enabled group FaceTime features. Another problem Apple faced was the release of iOS version 13 and the release of Mac OS 10.15, aka Catalina. Critics found problems with both 
identifying numerous bugs that prompted some tech reporters to advise people, uh, especially people looking at buying a new iPhone, to wait for patches before updating to the latest OS version or buying a new phone. Even Apple announced iOS 13.1, a patch to 13.0, before 13.0 had even shipped which indicated that the initial release wasn't really ready for implementation. So why was iOS 13 so buggy? Or maybe I should say, why is it? Because not all those bugs have been fixed. Well, some people have suggested that Apple was being overly aggressive when adding in new features to the operating system, and that feature creep might have been an issue. Uh, David Scheyer, an Apple software engineer, theorized that perhaps teams working on certain features were reluctant to admit when they were falling behind on deadlines, and that rather than cutting back on features, rather than saying, let's not do this because it's taking too much time and we need to ship, things were kept in the mix far longer than they needed to be. And Scheyer also listed several other possible contributing factors. Uh, it's all in the post on tidbits.com. I recommend checking that out if you want to learn more. The piece is titled, Six Reasons Why iOS 13 and Catalina Are So Buggy. And he goes into much greater detail there. Now, in late December, Apple pushed out an update for its mobile operating system. And this one's called iOS 13.3, which might make you think it's the third update to iOS to this version, but it's not the third update. It's actually the eighth update since iOS 13 was first announced. Many of the updates were in the iOS 13.1 and iOS 13.2 designations. Oh, and by the time you hear this, iOS 13.3.1 might be available. It's currently in beta as I record this episode. Gordon Kelly of Forbes suggests that if you have a device running an earlier version of iOS 13, you should absolutely update to 13.3. But if you're still running iOS 12, you might actually still want to wait a little bit longer before you upgrade. He does say that things are starting to look promising, that the initial months following the release of iOS 13 were pretty bad. He, he would give a categorical skip this update until it's fixed recommendation, that recommendation is slowly starting to soften as these numerous patches are addressing some of the more serious bugs and vulnerabilities that people have found in iOS 13. But this has not been an illustrious launch for Apple. Bugs in operating system updates are really nothing new. I mean, it happens all the time. No one's perfect, and operating systems are large and complicated pieces of software. But it does create a bit of an image problem, particularly if you're a company like Apple that has built itself on a reputation that its devices just work. And it also complicates a discussion that relates back to data security. Generally speaking, it's a good idea to keep as up-to-date with operating system and security patches as you possibly can. So if there's an update, generally speaking, it's good to install right away. Now, eventually, you might find that your particular device can't support whatever the latest and greatest version of the operating system is. That does happen, where the hardware itself cannot physically support the software. But keeping up to date reduces the opportunities that hackers can take to exploit vulnerabilities. However, when the operating system itself is a buggy mess and the updates aren't much better, it's not as clear-cut a case that 
updating is your best option. It may be that, yeah, you can update and that will technically patch some things, but it could open up either brand new vulnerabilities or it might just make stuff not work anymore. That's not great either. All right, let's pop on over to Microsoft, Apple's old rival and sometimes savior. If you've listened to old episodes of Tech Stuff, you know what I'm referring to. Now, I don't have a whole lot to say about Microsoft in 2019. The company has moved much of its operations into cloud-based services, but it did launch a product in late 2019 that has folks like me a little excited. It's the HoloLens 2. Now, the HoloLens is an augmented reality platform, and augmented reality involves overlaying digital information on top of the real world around us in some way. Now, you typically can achieve this through one of several approaches. You could have special glasses that act as a projection screen to display information in front of you as you look around so that you have digital information that you're looking at, but you can also look through that and see the real world beyond it. You could even have headphones that feed you information by audio that enhance your experience of moving through a physical environment. That's a type of augmented reality. It's maybe not as flashy as the first type, but it's still very legitimate. You could have an app on a smartphone that can recognize certain images and display data on top of a video view of the world. So in this case, you're looking at the world through your smartphone screen, which then can overlay digital information on top of that video view. But it's as if you're looking at the real world around you if you just kind of ignore the fact that you're really looking at a a, a monitor. All right, so the HoloLens and its sequel, HoloLens 2, the augmenting, or if you prefer HoloLens 2 Electric Boogaloo, it's a head-mounted display. And the first generation of the HoloLens received a very limited release because it wasn't intended as a consumer electronics product. It wasn't meant to go to the average person. It was more of a first step into a new market for Microsoft. The company launched the HoloLens 2 in November 2019 with a price tag of $3,500. So it's still far from being priced as a basic component of home computing, right? No one, uh, not, not your average person is going to go out and, and adopt the HoloLens 2. At $3,500, I will not be buying a HoloLens 2. I just can't justify that expense for something, you know, that would be interesting but have limited utility in my life. However, you could say that this is slowly moving this technology into the consumer space. Now, the new version of the HoloLens has an improved field of view, so users will have a less restricted view of the world around them. Uh, To me, the headset looks kind of like, imagine you've got a pair of safety goggles, and then above the safety goggles that you look through, so those are clear, you're looking at the world around you, above that, you've got a device that has a camera system mounted inside of it, and that part is actually attached to like a headband. So you're wearing that on your forehead, and then below that is where the safety goggles are. That's kind of what it looks like. Uh, I'm doing a poor job describing it, but it's hard to do in an audio format. But the cameras that face out from this device capture the scene around you, right? It takes in that information and interprets it through the computational system inside the device, which then determines what data to display on your, your lenses when you're looking at something in particular. So as an example, let's say you're looking at an electrical panel then the data that pops up might tell you what each element on that electrical panel relates back to. So it's kind of like a labeling system in that case. That's just one use case for this kind of technology. 
The company also tweaked the gesture control interface that the HoloLens uses. Uh, this was to improve on responsiveness and to cut down on false positives. So gestures, obviously, would be an important way to control this kind of technology. You might use voice control as well. Google Glass did that, but it seems weird because that sounds like you're talking to yourself. I can see that from personal experience because I got to play with Google Glass for a while. But uh, the gesture controls, they did something that I thought was pretty clever. So, for example, they built in a system where you would hold out your hand and you would look down at your hand and, you, and by moving your head a little bit, you could position an icon so that it appears to be projected onto the palm of your hand. Then you could touch that icon with the fingers of your other hand to activate it and launch whatever the app is. And that's kind of neat. It adds a sort of tactile response to the gesture control that otherwise was lacking. Now, I haven't been able to try a HoloLens of either generation yet, but I hope I can at some point. I love the potential of augmented reality. And I think really clever implementations have enormous possibilities in the future. But I think it's probably going to be several more years before we see this as a common technology for the everyday person. However, for certain industries, I suspect it will play a much larger role moving forward. We've already seen it being used in the medical field and engineering. We'll probably see it move beyond that slowly. And then gradually we'll see it possibly enter into the mainstream market if there's a compelling enough use case. If it's more of a curiosity, I would argue Google Glass kind of fell into that category, then it probably won't receive much traction, kind of like how virtual reality has been struggling again. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about some more stories, including touching on what a little company that rhymes with Schmoogle has been up to. Okay, let's talk Google. So like Facebook, Google came under intense scrutiny throughout 2019. Whether it was about user privacy or allegations that the company was covering up really terrible behavior and turning a blind eye despite employee protests or allegations that the company's search results were purposefully promoting certain material, uh, specifically sites that were in alignment with Google's own perceived agenda, perceived by the public, I should say, uh, at the expense of other material. So in other words, that Google was promoting things that fell in line with what Google wanted and suppressing anything that Google didn't like. That was the charge. Uh, the company had to weather a lot of strife in 2019. And to be clear, at least some of that strife was brought on by the company itself. One big change for the company actually requires us to take a step back and look up a level higher than Google itself at Google's parent company, which I mentioned earlier is Alphabet. Now, in early December 2019, Larry Page, a co-founder of Google, announced that he was stepping down as the CEO of Alphabet. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google itself, would become the new CEO of Alphabet while simultaneously remaining CEO of Google. Sergey Brin, another co-founder, had stepped down as Alphabet's president. But both Page and Brin said they were going to remain on the board of directors for the company. Page and Bren said that their decisions reflected a need for Google's management structure to streamline, but it also came at a time when the company was dealing with big problems from within and without. There was the scrutiny that I mentioned earlier in which government agencies and advocacy groups were criticizing Google's policies and 
talking about its power in the marketplace. And there were also allegations that the company had engaged in some retaliation against a few employees. Now, to understand that last bit, we have to look back a little further than the beginning of 2019. So in 2018, internal issues within Google became big news as thousands of employees protested issues ranging from sexual harassment problems in the workplace to, quote, unethical business decisions that create a workplace that is harmful to us and our colleagues, end quote. Now, that last quote actually comes from four former Google employees who posted a piece on Medium after they were fired. This was uh, around Thanksgiving 2019. The four employees had been leading efforts to unionize at Google, to organize employees. And it was a move that did not look good on Google's part. And it certainly appears at a casual glance, at least, that Google executives were trying to squash employees from being able to organize in a union or other organizational structure. The company's official response to inquiries about the firing was that the employees had allegedly violated Google's security policies, an allegation that the four former employees deny. The story is still playing out as I record this episode. And it does tap into another upsetting trend in business in general and the tech sphere in particular. It has become pretty common practice for a lot of companies to require employees to sign an agreement that limits the rights an employee has when they want to address problems in the workplace. Companies enact these policies so that they can limit their own liability and limit the impact those types of problems can have on business. The agreements typically force employees to try and work through issues through internal systems at the company, like going through human resources. And it really places restrictions on other options, such as pursuing a legal case against the company. Like you could get severely punished for going outside the company and seeking outside help. Now, assuming the HR department is on the side of the employees, you could maybe argue that this policy isn't too restrictive. It might be, you might not feel great about it, but if you think, oh, well, HR is going to be on the employee's side, maybe you're going to say, well, I'm willing to endure it. But at least in some cases, particularly with Google, it's appeared that the HR department was really more on the side of the corporation, not on the employees, that they had a tendency to shut down complaints or to try to mitigate the fallout of complaints by kind of shifting people around without removing or punishing anyone who was the, the focal point of an allegation. And so they weren't really addressing the underlying issues, which left the affected employees with very few options. And it's pretty ugly stuff. So that's one of the things that I think a lot of employees around the world, really, but particularly in the tech space, have started to kind of act out against. And we're not done with Google yet. The company launched its gaming service, Google Stadia, in 2019. That service allows users to access games via streaming. So you're actually running the game on one of Google's servers, and uh, you're playing it via your local connection. According to Google, you can stream games up to 4K resolution and 60 frames per second, assuming that your internet connection and your hardware can support that. The service launched with some stability problems and with a pretty limited library of games, and so far, it hasn't really taken off, despite the fact that it removes the need for buying a high-end gaming rig or even a gaming console to access current-generation games. Now, to be fair, 
Google is not the only company that has tried this model with only limited success. There are lots of companies that have tried a similar approach and also have had some issues getting anywhere with it. Meanwhile, over at YouTube, which again is part of Google, it's part of that Alphabet company, other problems were plaguing Googlers. So in September of 2019, YouTube changed its policy for verified creators. Verified creators are an interesting thing. So these are creators who had earned a verified check mark, And that indicated that essentially, up until recently, that they had attracted at least 100,000 subscribers. I happen to be one of these verified uh, creators, but more on that in a minute because it's an interesting case. So in the past, YouTube had issued verified check marks to accounts that had reached that 100,000 subscriber mark or more. That's all you really had to do in order to get the verified check. Now, they decided to change that so that not only would you need the 100,000 subscribers, you also need to have your account be active, meaning you have to be uploading content on a semi-regular basis and it doesn't need to be, you know, had, had been quiet without an upload for ages. Also, the accounts needed to be authentic. In other words, the account needed to be linked back to a real creator brand or entity that YouTube could verify was in charge of creating that content. This meant that a lot of the people who had the little check mark didn't necessarily meet those requirements. So then YouTube revoked the verified badge for thousands of creators, and that created an uproar. I happened to be one of the creators who lost my badge. I lost, I got an email that said, your verified badge is going away. Now, in my case, I wasn't fussed about it. I'll explain that again in just a minute. So YouTube's motivation was to clarify what a verification checkmark actually meant. Because one confusion was that people thought that a checkmark meant that YouTube was endorsing the content of that creator, that somehow YouTube was saying, yes, we approve of this. This is what that checkmark means. Uh, but it wasn't meant to be that. It was meant to be an indicator that the associated account was authentic and not some sort of impersonation account. And this is a legit issue over on YouTube because a lot of creators, really popular creators, see their work get lifted and reposted under other accounts. So you might create a really awesome video and maybe it gets a little bit of notice. So somebody else captures that video. They use a program to download it. Then they re-upload it under their own account and they try to get that one to take off. It's even possible for a copy to outperform the original. And that means that the person who originally put in the work to making that thing be what it is doesn't get the benefit of it. They aren't able to monetize the appearance on the other channel. You can put down takedown strikes and stuff like that, but it means having to constantly, you know, search the internet, search YouTube for copies of your work. So YouTube wanted to create a system that would make a more straightforward approach to verification in the sense that if you saw the check mark, you knew this person was legit, that the content coming from that person's channel was in fact coming from that creator. And uh, so they put that change in and they revoked all those check marks. People went nuts. And so YouTube walked it back a week later. 
And a week later, it gave everybody their verified check marks back, including me, which again, in my case, I don't think it was necessary. So let me explain about my check mark. So a few years ago, I was hosting a video series called Forward Thinking. This was for work. And the channel for Forward Thinking was linked to my personal YouTube channel for reasons I don't remember at this point. I think it was so that I could go in and make changes if I needed to, uh, even though typically we would have other people handle all of that. For some reason, they trusted me, and they linked the channel to my personal YouTube account. The result was I got a check mark because the Forward Thinking series had a pretty good subscriber base, like 250,000 subscribers. So it met the criteria and it got the checkmark king to me. Now, this is despite the fact that on my channel, I very rarely post anything. I've only got a few videos up on my personal channel. And when I do put a video up, I get only a few views. You know, it's typically like, hey, my mom watches my stuff, which is totally fine. I'm, I was doing it for fun. I wasn't trying to do it as a YouTuber, right? So in my case, when my check mark went away, I thought, you know, that's totally fair. I'm an outlier and I don't meet this requirement. I definitely don't deserve the check mark. It's okay that it's gone. But there are lots of creators out there who did deserve the check mark and they saw it go away. So for them, I'm glad that it came back because that thing can really help you. That check mark means that you have a little bit more clout when it comes to stuff like looking for sponsorships, maybe getting advertisers to support your channel, monetizing your work so that you can get compensated for it. That's important. Now, in my case, again, I was doing it for fun. I never expected it to be anything beyond that for my own personal channel, so I didn't worry about it. Forward thinking was a different story, but that was also a project that had a company backing it. So that was a totally different case. So yeah, uh, I'm glad that it got fixed. And uh, moving forward, YouTube is being much more picky about who gets a verification checkmark, but they're not wholesale eliminating all the previously awarded checkmarks. But another controversy that's also playing out on YouTube is one that's going to roll into 2020 and beyond. And it all has to do with a law from the 1990s intended to protect children. And that law is a U.S. law. It's called Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, C-O-P-P-A. It was, again, first established as law in 1998. And in 2019, the Federal Trade Commission, also known as the FTC, brought a suit against YouTube and alleged that YouTube had been illegally collecting the personal information of children without their parents' consent, that kids were watching videos on YouTube, that what they were watching was being tracked by YouTube, and that this was creating a digital fingerprint that advertisers were using to target advertising towards those children, and the children being too young to consent to this meant that this whole practice under COPPA was illegal. And specifically, that the company was using this, quote, in the form of persistent identifiers that are used to track users across the internet, end quote. So in other words, this would be the sort of thing where if you were watching a bunch of videos about elephants and then you happen to navigate over to, say, Amazon, you might see a bunch of suggestions that relate in some way to elephants. And the concern was that this was going to be targeting kids, and there was no way for kids to give legal consent to allow that to happen, and that data has value in it. 
and children's privacy and security also has value to them. So that was the problem. Well, YouTube would settle this lawsuit out of court. They paid $170 million in fines, which really sounds like a lot, but for YouTube, it's nothing. And if that's where it all ended, we would just wrap up this story and be on with it. But in addition to the fine, the company had to agree to create a system that is compliant with COPPA. So this would mean that any creator who is making child-directed content, meaning content meant to be viewed by children, would be affected by this. They would have to be COPPA compliant. They would have to uh, make sure that they were running a channel that was not gathering information about the uh, the children watching it, that they were not building in targeted advertising, uh, that they had to self-identify as being a creator that was creating child-directed content. You had to actually go into your little profile and click and say whether or not you were channel was meant for kids or not. But this raises questions like, what exactly is child-directed? And it has a lot of creators nervous right now because there are creators who do, for example, unboxing videos. And some of them are clearly meant for kids. Some of them are hosted by kids and clearly meant for kids. But there are others where it may not be for kids. It may be for people who really are into collecting toys that are from their favorite you know, franchises, for example. So toy unboxing would likely be in the spotlight. Creators who use video games are likewise concerned. Uh, there are people who are using video games to tell stories. There are people who use Let's Plays or playthroughs, but they're not necessarily meant for kids. There's also people who are working in animation, and that animation may not be meant for kids, but the general perception is that cartoons are for children, and they're concerned that they will be uh, interpreted as being child-directed when they don't intend to be and that they'll be affected by this. There's a lot of fear that this is going to have an effect on monetization so that people might not be able to get paid for what they're making, which means they'll probably stop making it. I mean, you got to make your living. Uh, they may move on to a different platform than YouTube or they may just stop entirely. Uh, every single violation of COPPA can be fined up to a maximum of $42,530. Now, keep in mind, some of these channels have hundreds or thousands of videos up online. So if they were identified as being child-directed and that their material wasn't COPPA compliant, they could get that maximum fine for every single video that seemed to be, uh, that was on their channel. So the cost could be staggering. So it's possible we'll see entire channels go dark with past videos hidden away or deleted, all out of fear that a mislabeling situation could result in massive fines. And there's still a lot of uncertainty around this issue, and we're not entirely sure how it's all going to play out. Now, as for me, well, I'm in favor of rules that protect kids from having their data harvested without consent. I mean, I don't like that idea at all about kids getting tracked and targeted in advertising. That's, you know, before they're able to even work with the idea of what that means, they're particularly, uh, you know, vulnerable to it. It's one thing to be an adult and to understand at least on a basic level what is going on when we use the internet. It's another matter entirely for children. However, the application of those rules can be pretty chaotic and disruptive, particularly to people who are well-intentioned, they are not trying to create child-directed content, but they're worried about their material being misrepresented or misunderstood as child-directed, and therefore everything is put in danger. That's not great either. 
And channels that are clearly not meant for kids could get caught up in the crosshairs through no fault of their own. So this is a situation worthy of attention because it stands to affect hundreds of creators on YouTube uh, who are not trying to make stuff for kids. Then you've got people who, like, their main audience are kids, and they're not making stuff for kids. It just so happens that their audience is mostly kids. That's an issue all on its own and one that I don't have any solutions for. If you're making stuff that, you know, you didn't intend to appeal to children, but children think it's fantastic, where does that put you? Because you weren't targeting them, but that's your audience. That's tough. Now, there are a lot of other stories I didn't get to, like, for example, the Tesla Cybertruck debut and how awkward it was when they had the debut and they hit it with a sledgehammer and then they threw some stuff at the windows and the windows started cracking. That was pretty a pretty rough showing. And the Cybertruck itself is is really funky. It's a very odd design. It kind of reminds me of a Lamborghini Countach or a, an old DeLorean in a way. Or I didn't talk about how the Samsung Galaxy Fold's mobile device, the foldable smartphone, how that launch uh, didn't go so well. You could say that the Fold cracked under pressure. <laughs> I didn't talk about the launch of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland and Disney World. That was a big deal, not just in tech, obviously, but in theme parks. Uh, there were the seemingly endless supply of movie and television streaming services that either launched in 2019 or were announced in 2019, stuff like Disney Plus and the upcoming HBO streaming service, uh, Apple Plus launched, you know, just tons of them now. There was Baby Yoda, but I think it's a good time to wrap up this episode. Let's set our sights on 2020. Yeah, you know what? Let's all get 2020 vision. In the year with a pun. I guess technically I'm starting the year with a pun because I think this episode goes live on January 1st. Anyway, that was 2019 in a nutshell. I've got a lot of plans for 2020. I'm looking forward to sharing with you more wonderful stories about technology, interesting stuff about how tech works, how it affects us, how we affect it, how things change over time, and how that change can be messy. But sometimes... Once you get through the messy parts, you can get something really incredible. So we're going to look at those stories as well, as well as the times where things just didn't go right. We'll be covering more of those as well. If you guys have suggestions for future topics I should cover in technology, let me know. The Facebook and Twitter handle are both TechStuffHSW. It's best to reach out to me there. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 